Well, good morning. This morning, we want to talk about Gentiles are part of the ecclesia out of Acts chapter 10, verse 24 through 48. As you know, we've been going through the book of Acts and in our study of the book of Acts, we're at the point where the Holy Spirit is making clear that the Gentiles have a place in the New Testament ecclesia. And keep in mind that the New Testament ecclesia is normally not called that, it's normally called the church. Uh, we understand that there is a local expression of the church, many local churches. We also understand there is a universal expression, which is all believers at, in all times and all places who know the Lord. So it's got a couple of near, different ways to understand that. So when I use the word ecclesia, I am trying to use the New Testament word and convey the sense, a better sense of what Jesus is building. He's building a group of called out followers who are his agents here on earth as long as they're alive. So that's, uh, that's what we have here is a, a challenge to learn to think biblically about the ecclesia or as we commonly say, church. Now in, in the New Testament times, particularly these early days of the ecclesia, there was confusion about who would be part of the ecclesia. In fact, there was a great bias against the idea that Gentiles would be part of the ecclesia. That was, that was a foreign idea. So Acts 10 is in many ways a pivot point. It's a time when this question is going to be settled. Although you will, you will note when we get to Acts 15, the question is going to come up again. But at this point, the foundation of the answer is settled. In Acts 2, the New Testament ecclesia began with the Jews thinking that, that what Jesus meant when he talked about discipling all ethnicities, he's talking about the Jews that were part of the dispersion. They were living amongst all these ethnic groups. And so Paul thought, or the apostles thought that, okay, we're supposed to go and disciple them. It's not just the Jews that live in Israel, but the Jews all over the world. That's how they kind of took it. And so that was led to confusion because that was not consistent with scripture. Now, these Jews at Pentecost in Acts 2 were highly biblically literate people. They knew the Abrahamic promise, and they knew it stipulated a blessing to all the ethnicities of the world. But they didn't understand what that meant, and they tended to skew their definition in favor of what they wanted it to mean. We all tend to do that. We take definitions and we skew them to fit our picture, what we want uh, reality to be. So even though the apostles were given the discipleship mandate in Matthew 28, which they were charged to make disciples of all ethnicities, uh, it doesn't, that's not a call to universalism where everyone is going to become a follower of Christ. It's a call to find the people among all the ethnic groups and to disciple them into people who obey the commands of Christ. So they, they had that. They didn't get it that that included Gentiles in those ethnicities as well. They kept thinking that it was just the Jewish people who were dispersed among them. So that confusion continued, and the bias against thinking otherwise was very, very strong. So in Acts 10, verses 24 through 48, we now have the story of Cornelius where the Holy Spirit's going to clarify. One more time, he's going to put this in front 
of the leaders, particularly Peter, who will be a proxy for the, the New Testament ecclesia leadership, the truth will be in front of him, and the challenge will be, will you believe God's definition of the ecclesia? Are you going to continue to have a skewed definition? Now, that should be very sobering for all of us to recognize we can be part of a healthy ecclesia, part of a healthy community, see fruit, and yet still be very deceived in how we're seeing reality. When you don't see reality as God does, we are deceived. So let's jump in and see how the Holy Spirit corrects this deception. So you may recall when we left off last time, um, Cornelius's friends uh, and his emissary and his two soldiers had arrived at the home where Peter's staying in Joppa. Joppa is about 34 miles away from Caesarea where uh, Cornelius is, and it's about a two-day journey. So we, we left off with everyone there in Joppa, spent the night, and they started on their journey in verse 23. Now in verse 24, let me read this, and then we'll talk our way through this. So this is verses 24 through 29. The following day, he entered Caesarea, that is Peter. Now Cornelius was expecting them and had called them and his relatives and friends, close friends together. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. By the way, this is one of the ways that we know that common grace, which is all that really Cornelius had was common grace, is not salvific because he's defaulting to worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And that's that's the curse. When you don't know the Lord, you will worship the creation instead of the creator. So he's showing that he doesn't, doesn't know the Lord, even though he knows about the Lord. Uh, but Peter lifted him up and said, stand up. I myself am a man. When While talking with him, he went in and found a large gathering of people. Now, Peter said to them, you know, it is forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for. So may I ask why you sent for me? Very interesting that he would ask why he was sent for. See, Peter, in anticipation of Peter's rival, excuse me, arrival, Cornelius gathered his relatives and close friends. He welcomed Peter by falling on his face in an act of worship. This was a very common way that you would worship. The word worship here is proskuneo, which refers to falling on your face prostrate in front of someone to show homage and respect. It may even imply kissing the hand. The word translated worship means kiss the hand, literally. So there may have been of that, some of that that happened here. Cornelius's action revealed that he knew about the Lord, but he didn't know the Lord. He mistook Peter for God. Cornelius' knowledge of, of God was limited. In Romans 1, the apostle Paul explained that although common grace has, is extended to everyone, it's limited revelation. We know only certain things. We know that God exists that he is indeed transcendent, and he has eternal power. In addition to general revelation, Cornelius also was exposed to Jewish people that he ruled over. He was the Roman ruling agent there in Caesarea, one of them. He wasn't the only one, but he certainly had authority. He had 100 soldiers under his command, 
And he was very gracious and kind toward the Jewish people. So he was a man that had some limited exposure to scripture, but he had great exposure to seeing God's God in creation, and he responded well to that. Now, there were many gathered at Cornelius' home. Peter's visit was greatly anticipated, and Peter stated that it was unlawful for him as a Jew to join himself or even come near a person who's not part of the covenant community. Now, that's a very interesting phrase. The word there for join yourself is a word that means to glue, uh, glue together. So, in other words, coming into some kind of relational contact with the Jew, with a Gentile, for a Jew was considered to be forbidden. Now, that was probably more custom than anything else. And then they extended that to not even coming near. It's not. It's not even. You know, being with them at dinner, for example, I don't even go around them. I don't even go in their home. It's that kind of thing. So that was the custom that, that Peter was under. Now, Peter had enough revelation to know that that whole thinking process there that was common to the Jewish people needed to be reevaluated. This was strictly custom. This was not Old Testament prohibition. Okay, Peter had concluded because of the trance he had, the vision that he had, that his thinking was wrong about what was clean and unclean, what was forbidden and not forbidden. So he's here. Uh, you can tell there's some reservation in Peter, but yet at the same time, there's some conviction in Peter that I need to be here. I need to hear what the Holy Spirit wants to say through this experience in Cornelius's house. So he asked, you know, why have you sent for me? That's that's uh, that's a funny question to me. Peter should have been very clear why he was sent, but he's going to ask it anyway. Cornelius will respond. So now we have his explanation to why he sent for Peter. Let me read verses 30 through 33. Cornelius replied, four days ago at this hour, at three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. Just then a man in dazzling clothing stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore, send someone to Joppa and invite Simon here, who is also named Peter. He's lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. Now, do you see the irony here that Peter is going to talk about how it's not uh, not appropriate for a Jew to uh, to be glued to a Gentile, much like much us being his present. He's staying in the home of a Gentile, Simon the Tanner. See, being a Tanner was for a forbidden occupation for a Jew. You're touching dead animals. That was unclean. So the irony here is really striking that, that Peter's going to come and put this out there that it's not appropriate for the Jew to mix with the Gentiles, yet he's staying with the Gentiles. So I immediately sent for you. That is, this is, again, Cornelius talking. I immediately sent for you, Peter, and it was good of you to come. So now we are all in the presence of God to hear everything you have been commanded by the Lord. What, a, what an amazing statement here. So Cornelius is sharing with Peter what happened to him and why he sent for him. Cornelius is a proxy for the Gentiles. Peter is a proxy for the Jewish leaders, the leaders of, of the New Testament ecclesia. And you can see that here we have the best that the world can present in terms of Cornelius the Gentile, and you have the leader of the apostles talking together. 
And Cornelius is saying, we're here to hear what God has said to you that you need to pass on to us. Humble, submitted, teachable. That's clearly the mark of the Holy Spirit. So let's see how Peter responds to this. We'll go on, verses 34 through 43. So let me read this. Peter began to speak. Now, I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, now that when you see the word nation in Scripture, many times it's the word ethnos. Ethnos refers to ethnic groups. So nations are largely defined by ethnicity. Ethnicity goes back to Noah and his three sons. There are three fundamental ethnicities. You see, you have Shem, who gave birth basically to the Middle Eastern people and the Eastern people. You have um, Ham, who gave birth to the African people. And then you have Japheth, who gave birth then to the European people. And all the other peoples have come from one of those three, three uh, strain, uh, you know, streams of, of Noah. So this is how ethnicities developed, is they developed through Noah, and then what ex exacerbated them was the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was an illicit project, but it was a proxy project. In other words, it represented how the people of the world, everyone was, which was we are deeply fallen and biased to seek to do our will according to our ways, which means we are seeking self-glory. God pronounced judgment on self-glory very simply by simply confusing the communication. That led to the various languages. So these languages were then propagated now through the ethnicities. If you'll notice how the Eastern languages, you have Chinese, you have Korean, you have Japanese, they are all pictorial languages, just like Hebrew is a pictorial language, but yet they're different. So you can see we have frag these various ethnicities fragmented into to sub-ethnicities. This is why we have all these different uh, ethnic groups today, but they all can be traced back ultimately to Noah's sons. So this is a, this is a fascinating you know, backdrop to this that you need to understand. So now Peter, being part of the Jewish people, who are the Old Testament ecclesia, the Old Testament people of God, now is now looking at all these other groups, these other ethnicities as the Gentiles, and he's realizing God doesn't show favoritism. But in every ethnicity, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable. Now, you know no human being in a fallen state can do what is right all the time, every time, in every place, in every situation. It's impossible. That's the big lesson from the Old Testament experiment. If God gives you a law and says, if you obey that law perfectly, you will be my people and I will be your God, we will fail. Because G the Jews demonstrated as a proxy for the world that the world could not do that. So <clears throat> the standard is there. There's nothing wrong with the standard. The problem is we can never meet the standard. So going on in verse 36, he sent the message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ he is Lord of all. So now we have Peter explaining, you know, explaining the reality. This is that, that Jesus came with a message. 
good news. What you could never do, God is going to take care of it for you through Christ. He will be the one who will perfectly obey the law, and now his perfection will be imputed to you. And now we know something that he is Lord, not only of the Jews, he is Lord of the Gentiles as well. He is Lord of all. He's talking about all ethnicities. This is a great example of how the word all, which shows up in scripture, you always have to ask, what is this referring to? Is this all without exception or all without distinction? The scripture uses it both ways. You have to look. If it's all without exception, that would be that would lead to universalism. Now we know from other scriptures that universalism is not true. So here it's used as all without distinction, without without all, without ethnic distinction. He is Lord of every ethnicity. Reading on, he says, you know the events that took place throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached, and that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how you went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil, because God was with him. Now, notice that he is not appealing to Scripture initially. He will eventually. But he starts out talking to the Gentiles from general revelation and from their own experience, which tells you that experience, while it is not the proof of things, it is a tool to make convincing arguments. And so he's using this tool saying, hey, you know these events. You've heard about them. You may have experienced some yourself. You know about these things. So let me just remind you things you know. He goes on and says, we ourselves are witnesses of everything Jesus did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. And they knew that too. The Jewish, the Jewish people uh, propagated this, the stories. The Romans propagated it. So Cornelius and his people, his friends, his family, surely knew all the events about Jesus. Everyone had knowledge. There was common knowledge out there. And the, the Jewish people, specifically the apostles and the close followers of Christ, had more details. So they were eyewitnesses. So that, that was important. Eyewitnesses were important back then to establish truth. Going on to verse 40, God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by those who God appointed as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. In other words, Peter's saying, I'm part of the group that not only you know, saw and experienced everything you heard about relative to Jesus, but we saw things that you don't know about. We understand things that you don't understand, and we saw him after he died, he was alive. And the only way that could be true is he had to be resurrected. We're witnesses of this. You may have heard the rumor that his body was stolen. Nope, that's not true. He's resurrected. And furthermore, verse 42, he commanded us, that is referring, Peter's talking about the followers, the disciples, the apostles, and followers of Jesus, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he was the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living 
and the dead. Now, this is another nuance of the gospel that we have to be clear on. If we're not clear that there is a judgment, then there's no accountability. But if we're clear there's judgment, there's going to be a judge, there's going to be a standard of judgment, and there's going to be consequences for failure to meet that standard. So he's bringing this up that Jesus is the judge. Not only is he the Savior, he's the judge. He's been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead, which tells you immediately there's going to be a resurrection. Everyone will be resurrected. The resurrection is universal. It's not just the people that know the Lord. It's everyone. We will all stand before the Lord and give an account. And you see this unpacked in Revelation chapter 20 in more detail. We will all stand give an account for our lives. Everyone who knows the Lord has the benefit, the gift of being able to rely on the perfect work of Christ as his substitute, as the one that paid the price for his sin. Those that don't know the Lord will not have that substitute, and they will bear the consequences of judgment for their sin. There is going to be judgment. There is going to be accountability. Verse 43, now he brings in the Old Testament for the first time. All the prophets testify about him, that through him, through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So here is the essence of what we talk about when we talk about the gospel is this forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness only has sense when you recognize there is a judgment. Now I want to go back to... um, verse 34 for just a moment before we move on. Now, verse 34 is just a fascinating verse. Here is Peter, who is very, very biblically literate, as all of the the first members of the New Testament ecclesia were highly biblically literate people. They were all trained in the Old Testament scripture. What they did not understand initially was Jesus was Lord and Christ. That's what they didn't know. The purpose of Acts 2 for Peter's message there and the the manifestation of the Holy Spirit through speaking in tongues in the various languages of the ethnicities, the point of that was to drive to Acts 2.36, where Peter says, then all the house of Israel can know for certain that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. That's the key to understanding the Old Testament. That unlocks the Old Testament. That unlocks an understanding of now what we know to be the vicarious substitutionary work of Christ on our behalf. That releases us now to the new covenant and to this age that we're living in called the church age where Jesus is now building the New Testament ecclesia, the Old Testament ecclesia, which is how the 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 Jewish the Greek Septuagint referred to the people of God as the ecclesia in the Old Testament. That ecclesia was flawed because it was based on human potency. The New Testament ecclesia is based on divine potency working in people. That's the difference. That's why it will be efficacious. Where the Old Testament ecclesia could never be the people of God because the people of God were inherently flawed and lacked the power to do anything about it. So it was easy to think 
that God was showing favoritism in the Old Testament to the Israelites. Now, even though they thought that, they had revelation that that wasn't true. You know, it's interesting how we can have revelation about something being, you know, true, and we just ignore the revelation. The revelation was in the Abrahamic uh, promise, Abrahamic covenant of Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where there it specifically says that there will be a blessing through the seed of Abraham that will extend to all ethnicities. It says that very explicitly. It's unequivocal. In Galatians 3, Paul connects the dots. He explains that blessing was justification by faith in Christ. That's what it was. Peter had this understanding. He had it from Genesis 12, and then he had Jesus right between his resurrection and ascension. He calls his apostles, the 11 remaining apostles, up to a mountain, gives them what we know to be the discipleship mandate to go to all the ethnic groups and make disciples, not make converts. That is not a mandate to world evangelism as we commonly use it. It's a mandate to discipling the ethnicities. Go to the ethnicities. And by the way, you can go to downtown Dallas and go to the ethnicities. Hope you understand that. That does not mean to go all over the world. You go to where God sends you. There will be multiple ethnicities there. Go there and do two things. This is what we're mandated to do, what we call the discipleship mandate. Some people call it the Great Commission. I think that's a misnomer. I prefer not to use that terminology because it misconstrues reality. The Great Commission is really the creation mandate to be God's ruling agents out of Genesis 1. That's the, that's the first and foremost commandment. It's still, in effect, we as human beings are here to represent God as his ruling agents. But we are charged to make disciples because in our fallen state, we will never rule well. The only way we can obey the creation mandate is to become disciples. So the discipleship mandate is about making disciples who could now obey the creation mandate. That's really the picture here. So he, <clears throat> Peter's saying, I've got, I've got that revelation. I understand that. I heard it in the Old Testament. I heard it from Jesus, and I didn't get it. He says, now in verse 34, I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. God is going to bless all ethnicities. He told us that in Genesis 12. Jesus repeated that to us in Matthew 28. I get it finally. I finally get it. So that's uh, this is the process that Peter's been in. So we probably all are guilty of not listening very well, having revelation right in front of us, and we don't get it. All right, so let me go on to the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit. This is the final five verses of this section that we're going to talk about today. Acts 10, verses 44 through 48. The Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit came on all those who heard the message. Now, listen to the words here of the text. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. And the word message here is the word logos. That's another way. The gospel is sometimes referred to as the logos. Okay. The circumcised believers, that is the Jews, who had come from with Peter, were amazed at the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we know from Acts 11 that there were at least six that were with him. 
There may have been more, but at least six plus Peter, seven, and the three that came to get them, you know, that was the entourage going back, 10 people going back. And so Peter's sitting here with six other brothers who are circumcised, Jewish people, and they're, they're looking at this, and they're seeing something happen that they cannot explain. The gift of the Holy Spirit. What they saw at Pentecost, okay, was they saw the, you may recall, the Galileans. The Galileans were the, the apostles of Jesus were largely Galilean. They were speaking in tongues, and everybody's hearing in their own language because mostly what was gathered on the day of Pentecost were people who were from various parts of the world. They were part of the dispersion. And so they were, they were speaking different languages wherever they were. They were speaking the local language. They had traveled from there where they were living to Jerusalem for one of the annual festivals, the day of Pentecost. This was a sacred, holy festival. They sacrificed their time. They sacrificed their safety. They sacrificed their livelihoods. They sacrificed money. They, they showed great commitment to the word of God, which today I don't know that we have believers that will sacrifice hardly anything for Christ. They may consider it a sacrifice to attend a Sunday gathering. That would be the only sacrifice they'd make, and they want to get out of there as soon as possible. Well, these first believers sacrificed a lot more to go and, and to be present. So they're present on the day of Pentecost, and they hear now this incredible thing. People, Galileans, who, by the way, were considered to be illiterate people, Galileans speaking all these languages that they didn't know, and they're saying, how can they know Greek? How, how can they know Latin? How can they know, you know, Aramaic? And how can they know, you know, the various languages of all these ethnicities out there? How can they know these things? Clearly, the Holy Spirit was empowering them to do this. So now here in Acts 10, you have the reverse happening. It's not the Jews speaking in tongues. It's the Gentiles speaking in tongues. Verse 45, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, the ethnic groups. Wow, what does this mean? For they heard them speaking in other tongues and declaring the greatness of God. That's exactly what happened in Acts 2. When the Jews, the dispersion, is hearing these Galileans that is the apostles from Galilee speaking their languages where they live, they're saying, how do these ignorant people, how can they know our languages? That's clearly, and Peter explains, this is that. This is what scripture says will happen. This is the manifestation of the spirit indwelling man. This is now a new covenant, a new period of time. The Old Testament ecclesia is being replaced by a New Testament ecclesia. The New Testament ecclesia is different in that, first of all, regeneration is required to enter it, and secondly, the Holy Spirit indwells you and empowers you to be able to live it, and that's why you will succeed. In the Old Testament, you failed because you could not be successful in and of yourselves. So the circumcised believers here, verse 45, who've come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and declaring the greatness of God. Then Peter responded, can anyone withhold water 
Now notice this. The speaking in tongues came first. That's a sign the Spirit has come into them, and I'm going to suggest has regenerated them. And so now Peter is saying, okay, I know we're not used to baptizing Gentiles, but can anyone withhold water? We clearly have a sign here. The Holy Spirit has regenerated them just like he did us. So can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? You see, I can't deny this. And so then when you know, he put that question out there, I'm sure for his colleagues to, to realize there's no way they can say no. We, we cannot deny what we're seeing here. It's real. So Peter then commanded them, verse 48, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Obviously, for the remission of sins, now to live the new life of being indwelled by the Spirit. So then they asked him to stay for a few days. Now, don't you know that was a glorious time where they talked about Scripture and they talked about Christ and his work on earth and his his death and his resurrection, his time between it, you know, the resurrection ascension where he focused on explaining the kingdom of God. They had to talk a lot about the kingdom of God because that was the big deal. Jesus came here to declare the, the gospel of the kingdom, to explain the kingdom of God. So they had a lot of conversation, I'm sure, about that, connecting the dots with the Old Testament. Wow, what a what a seminary that would have been, just to be with Peter for a few days. That would have been an incredible experience. Well, this is, this is a pivot point. There's no question. It's a pivot point in the history of the ecclesia. It's early on. It's, it's clarifying. So there's no doubt. It's unequivocal. The ecclesia will include all ethnicities. All ethnicities. Now, let me give you a, a, a theological point and then a word of application before we wrap up here. I want to talk about prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is uh, a term that uh, was coined by the uh, largely by the followers of Wesley as part of the, uh, the, the Enlightenment period, the Great Awakening period back of the, uh, the 18th, 19th century. Part and parcel of being a theologian is making distinctions. Theologians coin terms that are not found explicitly in Scripture, but implicitly reflect how Scripture is to be understood. You know a lot of these terms. For example, Trinity. There's no term for Trinity in Scripture, but yet it describes what we think we see in Scripture about the nature of God as a Trinitarian God or hypostatic union. Or theanthropic person. Those are terms refer to how can God become man? Jesus was the only God man. The you know the the union between the divine and the human, the theanthropic person, the God man. So we 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 don't find those terms in Scripture, but yet we use those terms to describe what we think we see in Scripture. Theophany, the the manifestation of Christ prior to his incarnation. That's the Old Testament theophanies. Again, a term not found in Scripture. Likewise, common grace is not found in Scripture, yet we, we understand common grace is a truth. And then we have special grace. Again, special grace is not part of Scripture, but we know that's to be saving grace. So we have a lot of theological concepts that we understand as we study theology, we understand what theology, you know, what scripture is teaching us, and we we try to construct ways to express it. And when you're in theological conferences or you're trying to communicate with others, you'd like to have short ways to communicate truth. 
So we do that commonly. Well, prevenient grace is an example of an attempt to convey something, even though I think you could argue that it's not a valid concept. It doesn't reflect scripture. <clears throat> but let me just give you some thoughts. Prevenient grace, basically, as it's understood by those that promote it, refers to grace before regeneration. This is more than common grace. We know that there's common grace for all, but we know that common grace is not salvific. Nobody comes to Christ through common grace alone. Cornelius illustrated that. He did not come to Christ through common grace. He needed the message of Christ that was sent to him through Peter. Now, so prevenient grace is assumed, uh, this is by those who promote it, to be salvific. That it presumes that it gives humans the potency to choose Christ. That's the idea. The leading advocate was uh, John Wesley. Uh, he wanted to believe in this because he wanted to believe that everybody made the choice. Everybody chooses Christ. So if I can go and get in front of people and convince them to choose Christ, we have won something, someone to Christ. Wesley was vigorously opposed by people like George Whitfield. George Whitfield never believed in prevenient grace. And Whitfield was probably a, a peer to Wesley in the, the Great Awakening. Another uh, redoubtable theologian of the 19th century and 20th century, Abraham Kuyper, uh, did not have much room for prevenient grace. So listen to his comments about prevenient grace from his uh, writing on common grace. He said, prevenient grace is a way of downplaying the extent of human depravity by positing a kind of automatic universal upgrade of those dimensions of human nature that had been corrupted by sin. The goal of prevenient grace is the upgrade. It is to raise the deeply wounded human cap capacities to a level where some measure of freedom to choose or reject the obedience to God is made possible. Now, Kuyper agreed totally with Whitfield. Kuyper's view of total depravity precluded Wesley's view of prevenient grace. Kuyper and Whitfield were aligned with the Apostle Paul. You may recall what he said in Romans chapter 3 and his great theological argument about total depravity. He says this, quoting from Old Testament scripture in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All who've turned away, all alike, have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. What about Cornelius? He did good works. Well, he did, wor did wor good works in the realm of common grace, but they were never salvific. What Paul is talking about in Romans 3 is works that lead to salvation, salvific works. There's no one that can do that. And furthermore, you see, there's no one who seeks God. You know, this whole seeker-friendly uh, church movement of the last 40 years is based on a wrong predicate. It's based on prevenient grace. If prevenient grace is wrong, that whole movement is flawed. So we have to recognize there's, a great, there's great questions out here about how Christianity is practiced and viewed today. We have to understand there are no real seekers. The only way anyone seeks Christ is by the Holy Spirit working in them. This was contrary to Wesley's view. Now, some might view prevenient grace as an extension of common grace. The problem is that common grace is not salvific. 
Rather, common grace is given to empower men to fulfill assignments in God's meta-narrative, but can never empower mankind to perform meritorious works that provide standing with God or to choose to be regenerated in and of his own volition. So in the Old Testament, you try to perform meritorious works to have standing with God, and what the Old Testament reveals is man can never do that, period. Everyone failed at that. In the New Testament, we now have we have a different approach to God where Christ paid the price, and now the Holy Spirit regenerates us, brings us alive, and gives us grace to express faith in Christ. So God is doing the work in us, and he's given us double imputation where our sin is imputed to Christ, and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, and now we have what's called the substitutionary atonement. So we have God's solution to a sin problem that man could never fix. So prevenient grace, you know, flies in the face of what scripture says. So, or you could say scripture flies in the face of prevenient grace. It does not fit. And it's not prevenient grace is not just an extension of common grace. Cornelius did not act out of prevenient grace as Wesley understood it. He did not choose to believe Jesus. Neither did the Apostle Paul choose to believe Jesus. He had common grace to respond to general revelation. Interesting, in Paul's case, Paul was not interested in responding to general revelation. He just wanted to persecute Christ. Either way, you know, there's the, Paul was not on the road to knowing the Lord. He knew about the Lord, but he didn't know the Lord. Cornelius knew about the Lord through common grace, but didn't know the Lord. See, either way, it doesn't, it doesn't bring you to Christ. God, in the case of Cornelius, sovereignly orchestrated events to accomplish his salvific will through first sending him an angel and telling him, call Peter. Now, why didn't he just have the angel give him the gospel? He could have done that. He could have intercepted Cornelius like he did Saul, but he didn't do that. Instead, he sends Peter, an agent, even prepares Peter to go and be this agent. And, of course, he multitasks. He's transforming Peter as he's transforming Cornelius. That's how God works. He's always multitasking. Common grace was used to facilitate events that led to the sovereign extension of salvific special grace to Cornelius. God responded mercifully to Cornelius, obedience to the revelation given to him. Do that is through common grace. It wasn't salvific. That came through the truth of Christ and the Holy Spirit working regeneration in them, invading them, transforming them, empowering them now to speak in tongues that manifest the reality of the Holy Spirit in them. So though, the, though this, through this, he was regenerated, but not based on the Wesleyan paradigm of prevenient grace. Cornelius did not choose Christ. Christ chose him. We have to be very clear on that. If we're not clear, We'll be confused, and we will not be effective in advancing the cause of Christ wherever we're sent. All right, so let me just give you a quick word of application. And the topic, <clears throat> my application is on self-deception. The Arbinger Institute's empirical study of organizational leadership concluded that self-deception is a common, virtually universal reality among organizational leaders. Arbinger researchers concluded that the reason for self-deception was self-centered thinking. A Christian explanation would agree, but would express the root issue to be systemic sin. You see, we agree that self-deception is there, 
but um, we don't agree it's just self-centered thinking. We agree it's systematic, systemic sin. Arbinger explains self-centered thinking as human choice, not systemic sin in humanity. Arbinger's research discovered a real phenomena, the proclivity among organizational leaders to self-deception. They discovered that, but they didn't understand it. They didn't properly un understand the root, why people are self-deceived, why organizational leaders self-deceived. <clears throat> Christianity offers the reason, offers the truth. Given the fallen condition of mankind, organizational leaders are susceptible to self-deception. Self-deception is the misunderstanding of truth. The misunderstanding of truth is the bias to sin systemically in human nature that blocks mankind from consistently seeing truth clearly. This phenomena is only true, is not only true of organizational leaders, but all people as well. An example of self-deception is the Apostle Peter's failure to understand the purpose of God to include all ethnicities in the New Testament Ecclesia. Peter was highly biblically literate and surely knew that the Abrahamic promise of a blessing to all ethnicities, yet he did not understand this meant the inclusion of all ethnicities in the New Testament Ecclesia. Furthermore, Peter heard from Jesus in the discipleship mandate, the directive to make disciples of all ethnicities, but didn't understand this to meant the inclusion of all ethnicities in the New Testament Ecclesia. Apparently, Peter even knew the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, the first Gentile to come to Christ in the New Testament, and yet he didn't really understand the inclusion of all ethnicities in the New Testament Ecclesia, because it wasn't until Acts 10 that he says, now I get it. Acts 8 is where the Ethiopian open eunuch was, was converted. Peter knew that, but he didn't get it. This was self-deception. Peter had multiple opportunities to understand the truth about the multi-ethnic nature of the, eth eth the ecclesia, but did not get it. From a Christian worldview, self-deception is the bane of human existence. Truth can be revealed, but we humans don't understand it or we're unwilling to understand it, unwilling to face it, unwilling to accept it. We don't want to understand it. We want it to be our way. In the case of Peter, pressure to conform to cultural traditions blocked him. When his peers found out what happened with Cornelius' family and friends through Peter's involvement, they opposed him. We're going to see that when we get to Acts 11. Clearly, there was cultural pressure that tainted Peter's thinking. The Apostle Paul even confronted Peter because of his failure to properly recognize God's purpose to include all ethnicities in the New Testament Ecclesia. This was a failure due, rooted in the fear of man. You can see that in Galatians 2 verses 11 and 12. Christians must be regulated by Scripture, period. Scripture as understood properly, as understood according to the word of God. It's the, the grammatical, historical, internally consistent interpretation of scripture. It's not proof texting, but it's properly interpreting scripture. We can all be self-deceived and we all are self-deceived on some level. And when tradition gets in our way or culture gets in our way and they become more authoritative than scripture, we will be deceived. All aspects of life, church practices, social norms, political theory, economic policy, etc., are best defined by Scripture because the true compass for life 
is the Bible, properly understood from a Christian worldview. Therefore, the best antidote for self-deception is to subordinate all issues of life to the scrutiny of Scripture. The Apostle Peter struggled with self-deception regarding the multi-ethnic nature of the New Testament ecclesia, but in the end, he surrendered to the truth of Scripture. May we all have the grace to follow his example, to recognize our self-deception, and to surrender to the authority of the Word of God to define truth and reality for all of life. May we have that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.